From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Again, it feels like this market is just really, has it gotten too far over its skis? That's what it feels like to me, at least in the short term, but what do I know? Um, I've only been doing this since 1986. Um, I still don't get it. Uh, Robert Teeter, he knows what's going on. He's the head of investment policy in the strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management. Robert, does it feel like we're a little ahead of ourselves here based upon what we heard from Fed Chairman Jay Powell last week? It does. We've gotten a lot of progress in the last six weeks as we've seen the, the yield on the 10-year come down from five to four. We've added a lot on the valuation side. Um, seems like we're fairly valued here rather than, than undervalued. Need a lot of progress next year on inflation and Fed talk to, to keep holding those gains in valuation. So I think we're, we're sort of at the end of this phase of the of the Fed rate cut cycle or Fed rate cycle. Excuse yep. me, flipping yep. from hikes <laughs> to cuts. And you know, there I am getting ahead of myself. Too. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how are you advising your clients to position heading into next year? Because you were mentioning to me earlier that you felt like what has transpired over the past seven weeks, you were thinking was going to actually take about six months to happen. Yes, I do think it makes next year a bit more challenging. We, we've compressed a lot of gains into a short period of time. The earnings picture still looks reasonably encouraging for next year. So while the street's at plus 11 or so, my forecast is for around 6% on the earnings side. Okay. I'm not really looking for any valuation progress next year. We've, we've had that in the last six weeks, and that probably isn't going to happen next year now. Um, but that still sets the stage for a pretty decent year of mid-signal digit returns driven mainly by valuation. And maybe when we get to the end of the year, we're starting to be into the Fed cycle and can get a little more clarity on the outlook beyond that. Now, Jess, she won't admit to it, but she's owned the Magnificent Seven. She's been long those stocks, so she's just <laughs> you know, going right to the bank. Me, on the other hand, I have not. What do I do here? Do I chase them into 2024? Do I try to find some of the sectors that have not performed? How do, how do you think about where to go in 24? The likely scenario in my mind is that the uh, the seven still continue to keep pace, driven mainly by the, the earnings side. They've got strong earnings potential. That should continue. But small caps will catch up. They've been out of favor for a long time. There's a lot of valuation pressure. Um, that's closed the gap a bit in the last six weeks, but I think still more room to go. 
there are a lot of segments within small cap too that have been pressured a lot by the rate cycle. So as you have an, an easing rate environment, some of the financing concerns are taken off of the table there. That's probably beneficial for margins in the small cap side who tend to carry a bit more debt. So I'm not really afraid of the, the seven here. They'll continue to, to carry their own on earnings, but the, the rest of the market will catch up a bit more. How do you view financials? Yes, that's a, an interesting and challenging sector, but I think the same as the small cap space. There's well, been it's also a, very broad because yes. you have the bigger banks, you have insurers, and then you also have fintech in it that was not originally in I that sector, but got moved over because of the gigs changes in the spring. In yes, the I think a lot of that nuance will be super interesting next year. We've had this easy knee-jerk reaction of lower rates, good for everybody, especially good for financials. And in my mind, the story of 2024 is going to be a stock picking story a nuanced story of not just sectors, but industry groups, and not even just industry groups, but individual companies and how they're navigating the challenges of a slower growth environment, which frankly is in front of us. So they have to be paying attention to margins. How about energy here? We've seen a, a lot of volatility in the price of uh, you know, crude oil across the globe, supply, demand, all the geopolitical issues here. Um, is that a space that you like into 2024, or is that kind of had its run? Because it's it'd been an, a sector that Everybody forgot about it for a decade, it seemed like, and then it's just been really performing well over the last couple of years. It has been. It, it's hard to see an environment where those prices continue a lot higher, absent more geopolitical risk. Again, just on the basis of a slowing economy. So globally, you know, Asia had been a real powerhouse of growth that slowed down. U.S. they'd had a massive rebound, of course, in terms of growth. But next year, with a backdrop of probably two percent economic growth, hard to see a lot of upside pressure on commodities next year. How are your clients feeling right now? I think they, uh, like most of the rest of the world, are feeling a, a bit surprised at how quickly the last six weeks unfolded. <laughs> you know, it was sort of very easy back in October to look at the year and say, it's been an okay year, but there are a lot of things that have been lagging. And a lot's Do happened in six weeks. Do they even have weeks. FOMO from the past six, seven weeks? Um, I don't if think so. We, we've done a pretty good job, I think, of keeping clients invested. And, and our view for most of this year had been relatively optimistic. So we hadn't been in the bearish camp. We had mm -hmm. been in the optimistic camp on the year on the basis of the progress that's been made in inflation and economy, mainly on the economy. You know, a lot of folks had a, a really strong recessionary um, bias, and, and we have not had that. And so I think for the most part, um, we've kept a pretty steady, steady course through the year and not feeling like we're, we're missing out on anything. How do you view the trajectory of the economy next year? Definitely slowing. Uh, I'm not in the recession camp, mainly on the basis that I think we'll, I think we'll see it coming, and that sounds like very dangerous <laughs> words, but with the availability of real-time data that we have and the fact that we're still adding jobs in the economy, um, that means economic growth. And we can debate a lot whether that's you know, half a percent or two percent, but it is still growth. And I think until we start seeing some signals that, that economic activity is turning negative, um, we're in a slow growth. What point. are some of your favorite signals that you like to gauge? Because I feel like there's sort of the telltale signs that Wall Street likes to look at, but what do you like to use from more of an investment perspective, maybe contrarian perspective too, to see if certain things are weakening where you start loading up on stocks? Yeah, that's a great question. We look a lot at, we do a lot of factor work. Um, we do a lot of work on spreads between sectors and attribution, um, and then tying that to where we are in the economic cycle. So just looking at rates of change on different indicators on the economy, both real time and, and jobs growth, and basically trying to link those two pieces together. So our story for 2023 had been avoiding recession, and we thought that would be good for earnings, and that's by and large played out. And the story for next year is sort of more of the same, but at a much smaller level. Uh, no recession, very slow earnings growth, and, and eking out mid-single-digit gains in earnings. How about outside the U.S.? Any opportunities there for you guys? 
It's been a really tough area. You know, every time we and others look at it, there's the, that nice looking valuation gap yep. that uh, never seems to close. And the challenge there, I think, is growth. You know, Asia growth has been slowing. Um, Europe's had a really tough time generating yep. growth. The sectors that are that are growth oriented uh, in terms of generating organic earnings uh, are really in the U.S. And so it's very hard to get excited about those areas. There are, of course, great companies that are very undervalued because they're based overseas. So there are some selective opportunities, but more of a stock picking opportunity rather than a broad based uh, international play. All right, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. As always, uh, Robert Teeter, he's head of investment policy uh, and a strategy, strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management. Uh, looking at these markets, holding on to some modest gains here. The S&P 500 is up about four tenths of one percent. The Dow up a half a percent. Uh, Russell up one point five percent. So that's better breath. Right. As the technicians like to say. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk transports. All right, I'm not a big podcast guy, but I actually do subscribe to this thing called Talking Transports. Lee Klaskow from Bloomberg Intelligence, he's got it. Because, I mean... when you got one titled Werner on better trucking conditions in 2024, boom, I hit that. Because yeah. I care about the truckers. I care about the railroads, the ocean stuff. It's, it's A, I used to cover those companies, but B, they give you a great insight into, into the, the economy. economy. Yeah, Lee yeah. Klaskow joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Um, he's been covering the transports for a long time. He does that for Bloomberg Intelligence now. Lee, I want to start with FedEx. Man, that stock is ripping. Um, up 62% year to date. They're going to report numbers after the close. What do you expect to hear? Um, you know, what we expect to hear is share gains. So there won some share gains from UPS. Uh, as you should probably remember, UPS had a labor contract negotiation that went down to the wire. And uh, shippers diverted their freight away from UPS, and FedEx was a big winner in that. They also won share from Yellow. Yellow, as okay, you remember, right. yep. you, back you know, in the day, in, in your transportation Y-E-L-L. days. Y-E-L-L. Yep. Um, they <laughs> were a, a large less than truckload provider. They they shipped about 50,000 shipments a day. So they had about 6 or 7% of the market and they poof, went away. Wow. So that's a lot of a uh, lot, lot of pallets that went up for grabs and FedEx FedEx Freight is uh, the largest LTL carrier in North America. So they were right? able to benefit. Man, I didn't know that. So when you're looking at FedEx, you know what it, LTL means? LTL. Less than truckload. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Good like stuff. As opposed to TL which is not team leader, it's truckload. When team you- leader. <laughs> and Paul, if you want to learn more about it, we actually uh, we, we have a new podcast today. You do. With the CEO from Arc Best. Arc Best celebrated centennial this yes, they year. They did. Happy uh, birthday, Arc Best. Yeah, very cool. So, and so Arc Best, <laughs> are they sort of their private trucking company, LTL trucking company? No, they're, they're public. They're a- public. ARCB. Oh, I didn't do that deal. How yeah. did they get public? I took all those companies public back in the day. They, they were public, and then they uh, a while ago they had some uh, activist investors, and then they took themselves private, and they went public again. Fort Smith, Arkansas. Yeah. That's where I went when I was doing those trucking. Really? Um, God, where did we do the Heartland? I don't know, Des Moines, Iowa, or something. Oh like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That sounds like it's awesome. Sounds about Great right. Industry. Looking at the Dow transports from their October low, up close to twenty percent. When you're thinking about 
we will hear like you're talking about FedEx after the bell today. But when it comes to these transport companies, what are they telling us about the economy? That's that's a good question. So we've been in a freight recession for quite some time, and we're coming out of that freight recession. Um, the less than truckload market is actually uh, negative right now. And one of the good things about when we were talking about FedEx earlier, why it's a good thing uh, that they got all this market share from yellow, it, it comes at a time when volumes were down because demand has been down. So they've been able to mitigate that impact. Um, but you know what we're seeing is uh, from our vantage point and conversations that we have in our channel checks is that you know in the truckload market, we seem to be at the bottom. Uh, we're bouncing along the bottom, and demand is poised to do uh, better next year. Not great, but better, uh, and we could see some growth. And you know, we expect growth from the rails, uh, railroads, whether it's commodities or intermodal uh, volumes in the mid single digits next year. We expect uh, truckload volume uh, growth in the low single digits next year. So that's not re that's not recessionary data from your transportation. No, I, so so I think what we're doing is we're reflecting positively on a lot of these industries because like we we've been down for a while and some of that has to do with the economy and some of it has to do with really difficult comparisons. Cause right, because they everybody was stocking up like crazy back in the betcha. day. Yeah. Okay, and the destocking uh, cycle appears to be over uh, from a lot of the retailers, which is really good for the truckload market. So, I mean, I look at FedEx, again, up 62%, but UPS down 7%. Is that reflective of just their operating? They also had those, the strikes the over strikes? the summer, yeah, like, too. Yeah, so, so what you see there, so, you know, it's all about, you know, your two points from a, a performance standpoint. And this year, it's all been about, um, you know, UPS dealing with their labor contract issues and FedEx kind of getting hammered last year and okay. coming, coming off their lows. Um, they've initiated a bunch of uh, new strategies. Uh, they call it Network 2.0. Their drive initiative is supposed to save about $6 billion. Wow. Um, they're really, FedEx became a fat company and they're trimming the fat right now. And they're also looking at ways that they never really looked at before, like combining their ground and express networks. Uh, it's gonna take time, it's gonna be messy, it's gonna be um, lumpy, if you will. But you know, I think the market uh, is actually starting to believe that management can finally execute. How did the, what's going on in the Red Sea and it comes to shipping, how do you foresee that affecting transport companies? Yeah, so it's just another uh, kind of shock to the supply chain. Uh, we've seen container liner rates, which are down 29% from last year. They're up 10% over the last two weeks. Uh, and that's mm. really driven on that. It's, it, because at the end of the day, if a ship can't go through the Suez Canal, it's gotta go south uh, along Africa. Wow. Uh, it, it adds about 10 to 12 days. Uh, and so that, you know, time is money. Uh, so it's going to add costs uh, to, sh to shippers. And listen, it's going to be inflationary, uh, but that inflationary pressure, uh, I'm not going to say transitory because I think someone got in trouble <laughs> for that, but it's definitely going to be short-term in nature because the U.S. government is and, and, and its allies, they have a coalition to deal with uh, the Houthi rebels. Uh, and, you know, it, it might not create the most um, fluid supply chains because, you know, ships might have to operate in a convoy, if you will. Wow. <laughs> um, but but it'll be safer, uh, safer for ships to, to transverse the uh, uh, traverse the, uh, the Red Sea. I didn't even, quite frankly, I have to be honest, I didn't even know where the Red Sea was oh my until God. a couple of days ago and I had to go this like, Google like map it. This was like Alaska now, Air when you thought it was... Uh, well, it's Jerry Garcia on the, oh my on the tail of Alaska. <laughs> oh my I, I thought that until very recently <laughs> in my adult life. Um, 
So, but I mean, twelve percent of you of global shipping goes through the Red Sea. So, yes. I mean, that's Maersk. I mean, those are the companies you cover, right? The big yeah. Big so a lot, a lot of the liners like Maersk, Capac Lloyd, uh, the two private ones, MSC and, and CMA, they all announced that they're not going to go uh, in the Red Sea uh, because of the risk, not only to their crews but to cargo and ships. Ships are pretty expensive. They're yep. around seventy to, uh, to one hundred million dollars each. So. Um, you know, th that's right. very expensive. And insurers do not want, insur insurance companies don't want uh, the ships that they're insuring to be in those waters because obviously it'll uh, increase uh, their costs. Talk to us about the railroads. What's the, what's the, the theme for 2024 for these railroads? Um, is it, it kind of just riding the economy? I mean, what, what are you thinking about or what are investors thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about service. So, you know, rails talk a, a, a big game about service, but I really think they, they need to deliver on that. More and more of the railroads are, are kind of have pivoted to a, a precision schedule railroading or a precision railroading. Um, they like to call it different things, but at the end of the day, it's Six Sigma for the rail industry. Um, and in order to lower costs, it can't come at the expense of service. And so, you know, you'll see, um, Railroads maybe have more employees uh, during down cycles than they might normally have, just so they're prepared for when the uptick happens. And also, in addition to service, I think it's growth. It's where are they going to grow from? Because they're not going to grow from major M&A because uh, yep. the large class ones will just not be able to, to merge. It's just they're just too big. Uh, so it'll be tucking acquisitions of short lines and kind of looking to take advantage of trends like cross border, uh, near shoring, uh, that, that kind of stuff. We only have about a little maybe like a minute and a half left but i want to get into airlines because it is the holiday travel season i know airlines going into the fourth quarter had cut some of their outlooks because of they were worried about uh demand but what are you seeing because it seems like people are still traveling well the only thing <laughs> i know about airlines is i'm on them that's george, right. that's george ferguson my colleague at bi i do i do not cover airlines but i do cover some of the the, the freight the air freight carriers. And what we're seeing there is capacity kind of getting back to uh, pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, liner rates are down 29%. Um, air freight rates are only down like um, high single digit, low double digits. So they've been a lot more resilient uh, since the pandemic. Uh, and, and that's really because there hasn't been, while the capacity is nearing pre-pandemic levels, there's not a lot of slack capacity out there. All right, Lee Klaskow, thanks so much for joining us. Lee Klaskow, he is a senior analyst covering all the transports and logistics for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's also got a podcast out there, uh, Talking Transports. The focus will be on trucking, railroads, ocean, and air freight markets and everything in between. So check that out. He always gets a lot of good uh, uh, guests on there. And again, this most recent week, uh, ArcBest, one of the biggest uh, trucking companies out there. We got their uh, chairman, president, and CEO on to talk about the transport business. Uh, so good stuff. Check that out. S&P 500 here today holding on to the gains up about a half a percent. Same for the Dow, same for the NASDAQ. Uh, the small cappers having their day up 1.7% here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jasmine and Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. And tis the season, Paul, because we talk yep. so much about seasonality heading into year-end and who better <laughs> to bring in than Jeff Hirsch, CEO at Hirsch Holdings and the editor of the Stock Traders Almanac, joining us on Zoom to discuss his correct market call this year, what to expect 
for the Santa Claus rally period, as well as the outperformance here in small caps. So just to want to point out, Jeff correctly called the S&P 500's correction coming out of the, the summer into the fall, and then also the rebound that we're seeing here at year end. He also, over a decade ago, he predicted that there would be a Dow super boom in the wake of the global financial crisis that would drive the blue chip average to above 38,000 in the mid-2020s. If you look where the Dow's trading at now, around records again, and tr currently trading around 37,500. So not too far away from that call he made a while ago. But Jeff, it's always really great speaking with you. And thank you for taking the time to join us because I know you're busy this morning and, and had a doctor's appointment. So you made times for us. But I wanted to start off first because Paul and I always talk to people and, and portfolio managers will come in and, you know, once we get to the fourth quarter, as you know, because you've done this for so long, people will talk about the Santa Claus rally period. But can you break down to our listeners what the mm -hmm. indicator is and what time span it actually crosses over? Yeah, it gets misused. I mean, it's a fun phrase, Santa Claus rally rolls off the tongue, but um, it's something my father discovered and devised back in 1972. It was published in the 73 Almanac. And it's this short seven trading day rally, the last five trading days of the year to the first two of the new year. And it's not this huge, you know, uh, gain. It's about a one and a half, 1.3% gain on the S&P on average. But the, the key thing is that it's not a strategy, it's an indicator. And when that, you know, period is not up, it's an indication that the, there's something amiss in the markets. You usually have, a, 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 you know, traders and, and, and prop desk people picking up uh, stocks that are, you know, sold off for tax loss selling. Rest of us are, you know, sort of uh, away celebrating with family and friends and, and traveling and that sort of thing. So as my father said, you know, some 60, 70 years ago, uh, when, when if Santa Claus should fail to call, bears may come to Broad and Wall. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, an indication that uh, it's, it's a catchy tune. He could turn a phrase. <laughs> but we've combined that with the um, January barometer, the, another one of his inventions back in 72, the same time, they're both in, in that 73 almanac. The full month January barometer, everyone knows as January goes, so goes the year. Right. Uh, and, then there's the, and then there's the first five days early warning system. Um, January's become a bit of a profit-taking period. It's lost some of its luster in recent years, and we've had some errors in the January barometer recently. So we combined all three to this, this January indicator trifecta. And, you know, the bulls win when we hit that trifecta. We hit it this year in January 23. Uh, since 1950, excuse me, when all three are up, Santa Claus rally, first five days, full month, January barometer, the year is up 28 out of 31 years, 90.3% of the time for an average gain of 17.5%. Um, the, the subsequent uh, um, 11 months, February, December, up 27 of those 31 for a 12.3% gain. So, you know, we didn't have that trifecta in 2022. Interesting. Again, you know, we were, going, we were going into a midterm year, so we're already concerned. Um, so we'll be looking at those things. Right now, I'm pretty bullish. I mean, this is the pre-election year. We've got the, a good chunk of new highs. We're seeing it right here happen in December, the pre-election year. A lot of them on the last trading day. Um, everyone's sort of getting, you know, all the, all the bears are now getting on the soft landing bandwagon. So we'll be watching these indicators and market action going through January. And, you know, our, our forecast, our early forecast is, is already pretty bullish for 24, power of a sitting president. Um, but we'll be we'll be fine-tuning that in, in uh, the newsletter on Thursday for subscribers. And then um, we'll be watching the market. And if, it, uh, if things go awry, you know, whether with Santa Claus or January barometer, or something happens with the, the, the election, I mean, if 
something were to were change where Biden's not, you know, the city president running, that would change our outlook a little bit. Jeff, you know, we've seen since late October, this S&P 500 rally 15%. It's been such a move in, in November and, and, and December here. What do you make of that? It's pretty typical four-year cycle seasonal um, behavior. Uh, it's encouraging. Everyone had, had you know, had this, the small caps were, were in the doghouse, but, you know, I put out some of the recent charts about the small cap outperformance starting, you know, picking it around late October. And really the bulk of it is the last half of, of December. Uh, I mean, gains beget gains. It's supportive. We're starting to see some, some breath, you know, supporting it. We're seeing, you know, broader participation in this. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a rally based upon, you know, the success of, of, of the economy. There's this productivity anticipation with AI, um, market may be a little ahead of itself. We're going to have some corrections, uh, um, you know, throughout the, you know, the, the year, just like we had in, in 23, a very bullish year, but we had a nice, you know, 10% plus correction, depending upon the index you look at. Um, I make, uh, uh, I'm. What I make of it is that it's a bullish indication that we're, we've got further upside here. So my I, my biggest concern at the beginning of this year, I don't know if you, if you remember, Jeff, when, we, when I was talking, is that I wasn't bullish enough. I mean, we were already forecasting, you know, 15 to 20 percent gains for, for the for the S&P. Here we are with that. Um, so, again, you know, maybe I wasn't bullish enough, but pretty close. <laughs> what I'm wondering is because you're walking us through the seasonality with small caps, typically we tend to see that usually historically more in mid-December. And then as as you know, going into year end with some of that window dressing, is some of the gains, especially the bulk of it that we've seen, like you were talking about, that started out toward the end of October, does that potentially steal some of the typical games we would see in the last couple of weeks in December? Or do you expect this to continue for small caps? To continue, uh, I think the small caps were catching up um, with, with the rest of the bull market based upon, you know, the interest rates finally settling down. That, that seems to have a bigger impact on the small caps. Uh, we, I, I don't know if we're going to get as much of, of that, you know, small cap outperformance that we, as we've just had. I don't think it's over whatsoever. I think we're going to get that regular, you know, uh, small cap effect, what used to be the January effect in the last half of, of December and into, into January. I don't think it's taken away from it. I think it's just um, catching up and, and setting us up for another, for a continuation of small cap outperformance. Jeff, what do you make of the uh, Magnificent Seven uh, here in 2023? That was a unique aspect to this market performance this year. There's always been leaders. Um, they're still leading. You know, there was the Nifty 50 back in the late 60s. Yep. Um, you know, these companies are doing, you know, fabulous things. Uh, we're using their software and their their products right now as we speak um they some of the other you know industries are catching up but uh i mean you've always got leaders i'm not so concerned that the market's you know being led by seven stocks there's plenty of other positive you know uh advancing declining situations and and new highs and you know i think we had the most new highs since 21 on the s p um you know it, it, it's it's not just the magnificent seven that's an old story it's kind of like the people who are calling for the bear market, looking at that it's yield, you know, curve inversion from from O2, from 22. So, I'm not afraid of the magnificent seven. Let them lead. There'll be other people stepping in. <laughs> 
We only have about 20 seconds left, but you were talking to us earlier about how coming into this year, you, you should have been even more bullish, even though you're already seeing a 15 to 20 percent rise in stocks this year. What percentage are you expecting in 2024? My early handicapping is about 8 to 12% on the Dow, maybe a little bit more S&P and NASDAQ. And I'll be fine-tuning that um, over the next couple of days as we finalize our annual forecast in the newsletter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, above average uh, election year performance, you know, when a sitting president's running, the Dow's up 12.8% on average. When it's an open field, it's minus 1.5%. I think we've got a lot of, head, a lot of tailwinds here right. going into 2024 right. election technology, AI, and uh, a rising market. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Jeffrey Hirsch, CEO of Hirsch Holdings and editor-in-chief of the Stock Traders Almanac. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Early in my career, Jess, I was at the Chase Manhattan Bank. I survived their credit training program, which is the best <laughs> on the street, still is. Um, and we were in the media group, so we lent... Not, not against assets, not against like receivables and stuff like that. Cash flow, baby. Cash leverage flow. lending. And that's go. how we did. We go up to six times leverage lending on some of these <laughs> stupid things. We did fleet call, which was we gave them $500 million and we went to our credit committee and said, we want to lend them. They have no assets, no cash flow, no revenue, but they have air. So we were lending against air. Wow. We, we got that deal done. <laughs> uh, so I love the leverage lending business. Roberta Goss joins the senior managing director at Preteam Partners. Uh, I have no idea what Preteam means. What does Preteam mean? Preteam means value. Value. Ooh. Yes. In Latin, we'll go? Yes. Good enough for me. Um, <laughs> how do you guys talk to us about 2023 in kind of the credit market? Because, you know, I'm looking at across a lot of fixed income, positive returns this year, yes. uh, which is good versus 2022 when it wasn't so much. But how, is, how do you view the kind of the, the credit markets out there? So we've had a pretty volatile two years, um, but 2023, uh, very strong across the board for leverage credit. Uh, leverage loans as of now up almost 12.5% um, after effectively a flat year in 2022. Um, most of that coming from the absolute yield. So, you know, all loans are floating rate, and so the base rate at over 5% provides a lot of uh, carry in, in the current market. Um, I think as we go forward into 2024, um, it's going to be, uh, you know, a different type of year uh, in terms of earnings and dispersion across the board in terms of credit selection. Talk to us more about the earnings picture. What do you foresee and where do you see areas of weakness? Where do you see areas of strength? Sure, so um, as we've gone through 2023 and in particular Q3 earnings, I think surprised to the upside. And that's not surprising as we look back with very strong GDP numbers here in the US. I think as we go into 24, we're gonna see more differentiation. 
Um, what we've seen over the last couple of years is normalization as we've dealt with inflation factors, be it supply chain, labor, um, and just cost of inputs. I think as we go through 2024, and the U.S. consumer is going to play a big part in this, does that uh, start to impact top line? We've had very strong top line um, for the last couple of years. Margins have been all over the place. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, some sort of slowdown in the top line. And the degree to that slowdown is, is what's going to be most impactful. Private credit. Yes. <laughs> I knew this was coming. Do you guys, how do you guys interact it. with the private credit business? Right. So we're focused um, at Predium almost exclusively on the broadly syndicated market. Um, I think that's... So you buy loans from banks? From banks. So I would do my Chase Manhattan Bank. I'd syndicate 90% because I don't want to take any risk. I'm in the business of generating fees. Right. Um, so I would sell it to you. Yes. Nice. And so private credit's now creating more competition yes. for the likes of J.P. Morgan. Um, what that, uh, for sponsors, what they're prepared to do is pay up for certainty of execution. And that was very important in 2023 when the broadly syndicated market was, uh, you know, pretty much shut uh, for, for, parts of, for parts of the year. Why was it shut? Uh, we've seen substantial outflows and CLO creation, which... Collateralized um, loan obligations. Collateralized loan obligations. Um, uh, represent about three quarters of the buying base for broadly syndicated loans. And uh, issuance was slow to start okay. this year. So the private credit market um, generally costs sponsors about 200 basis points more. Uh, in right? terms of, yeah. And why, why go there? Because I can't get a bank to do it? Uh, certainty of execution. Okay. Um, and I think that that started to shift as okay. the broadly syndicated uh, primary markets opened up and is quite strong right now. So I think the sponsors want both markets, yep. and I'd include high yield as well, um, to be uh, you know, are you accessible. Are you surprised that the banks have allowed that business to walk across the street? I never would have done that. Yeah, I think they've been surprised as well. So private credit now um, is comparable in size at yeah. you know a trillion plus to high yield in loans. Um, I think they're the banks are playing catch up in terms of what role they have in that market. Yes, private debt was thought to be really pressured as rates were going to rise, but that didn't happen. Walk us through why that didn't happen. Yeah, so I think that. Um, you know, one thing with private debt that we've experienced, or not experienced, but seen over the last, uh, you know, few quarters is they're very aggressive in terms of terms. And um, as rates have risen, and uh, I think some of these companies and multiples that sponsors are paying, they're having a hard time dealing with the increased interest cost. And so we're starting to see and this, I think, is scary. And yep. I was also trained at J.P. Morgan, nice. so go. <laughs> goes back to my uh, my uh, training days. First lien pick loans. Oh boy, sixteen um, percent first lien pick. That payment in is, kind. Uh, yes, is um, you know put in place because they don't have the cash flow 
to service and uh, cash interest, I think um, setting up for you know volatility in the future. Um, but as purely a function of where rates sit today. How do you think the 2024 deal market will be, ergo the kind of the stuff that you guys are going to see coming out, coming out of the bank syndication? Yeah, I think we're going to see a real pickup in okay. primary activity next year. I think the biggest um, factor this year has just been the gap between buy and sell side um, mm -hmm. multiples. I think that started to contract. We've started to see M&A pick up. I would expect that to continue next year. And I think as a, you know, as our market, you know, continues to remain open and is um, active, uh, you'll see a, a resurgence of. Are of you guys PSL. at Predium raising capital now? Yes. Yes. Uh, we are raising capital across all products. Um, and what's the pitch here? Like, what's the what's the reason that you're right? Going so we think that um, next year we're going to have a lot of dispersion, and that uh, credit selection is going to be a big differentiator among uh, performance. And I think this goes to sector selection and individual name selection. Um, and that's our strong suit. Yes. So looking at credit, what do you think this tells us about economic growth? Well, I think as we saw in Q3, um, earnings were, you know, continued to be strong and actually accelerated right. from the first half. Um, I actually think the U.S. economy is doing quite well, um, and that's what we've experienced in in uh, pretty broad-based industries. What would you need to see in the credit space to raise any sort of red flags to you? I mean, it seems like you're not seeing those yet, but what particular indicators would you need to see for then kind of alarms go off in your mind as far as growth stalling out? Yeah, so what we haven't seen is a deceleration of the top line, and that to me is a, a function of strength in the U.S. consumer. Um, we've seen a deceleration of growth to some degree, but not negative growth um, year on year or quarter on quarter. Um, I think we'd need to see that in a more broad-based way uh, across um, consumer-driven sectors, which we haven't seen at all. Hmm, interesting. Roberta, thank you so much for joining us. Roberta Goss, she's a senior managing director at Pretium Partners, which again means value. 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 Thank you. Boom. <laughs> I was listening. It's a new language. Yeah, maybe me one ear, other ear. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.